I'm Katie Fang, live from Telemundo Studios in Miami, Florida. And here's the week that was. By a better than two to one margin, none of these candidates finishes first in the Nevada Republican primary. Dubbed Citizen Trump by a three judge panel in Washington, ruling Mr. Trump is not immune from prosecution. Within 24 hours of unveiling that agreement, they abandoned bipartisan border reform and Ukraine for one reason, because Donald Trump asked them. The jury found Jennifer Crumley, the mother of the school shooter, guilty on all four counts of involuntary manslaughter. I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. I want this one more than I've ever wanted a Super Bowl in my life. The long-awaited report by special counsel Robert Hur concludes that no criminal charges against President Biden are warranted. The special counsel's report offers scathing details of what it calls his diminished faculties and faulty memory. Take a look at what I've done since I've become president. None of you thought I could pass any of the things I got passed. How'd that happen? You know, I guess I just forgot what was going on. The majority failed to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, and then they failed to pass a bill for aid to Israel. Last night was a setback, but democracy is messy. Quote, this was a riot. It was not an insurrection. The events were shameful, criminal, violent, all of those things, but did not qualify as insurrection as that term is used in Section 3. Now that was Donald Trump's lawyer conceding to the United States Supreme Court that January 6th was criminal and violent. Definitely not a tourist visit to the U.S. Capitol. We've got the latest on what's next now that SCOTUS has one of Donald Trump's many criminal cases. And a good Saturday morning to you all. We'll have the latest on all of the legal ins and outs of Trump world with a blockbuster panel of some of our best and brightest legal minds in just a few minutes. But first... We begin today's show with the White House on the defense following the release of special counsel Robert Hur's report on President Biden's handling of classified documents. Hur concluded that no criminal charges were warranted and that there was an absence of direct evidence of Biden's intent to violate the law. Yet at the same time, his report concluded that Biden's actions presented, quote, serious risks to national security. The report also took shots at Biden's age and memory, including language that was highly partisan and unnecessary to hers job to determine if the president had committed a crime. Officials are blasting the report as politically motivated and disputing that Biden even shared classified information with a ghostwriter. And so far, at least one Republican lawmaker is calling for the invoking of the 25th Amendment to remove the president from office. Joining me now is NBC News White House correspondent Aaron Gilchrist, live from Wilmington, Delaware, with more. Aaron, good afternoon. What's the plan now for the Biden administration moving forward after the release of her report? 
Well, Katie, we saw uh, an angry President Biden Thursday night after the report came out. I don't think you're going to see a lot more of that. The president isn't likely to be uh, out on the campaign trailer at the White House, for that matter, addressing this issue over and over again. But I also think we got a pretty decent preview of what will happen from Vice President Kamala Harris and from the White House Counsel's Office yesterday. The vice president, uh, speaking at another event or an unrelated event, I should say, took time to address one question, and it was a question about this report. Uh, and how it talked about President Biden. She went into detail about what happened in the days after this president sat for the interview that uh, led to this report uh, and talked about how he was engaged and running the show with his national security team in the days after the attack by Hamas in Israel. Uh, and the vice president uh, used that, uh, that moment as an example of how the president is uh, capable and able to do his job. She also spoke uh, a little bit about that moment in the context of the language that was in the report that we saw from Robert Hur. I want you to hear a little bit of what the vice president had to say. The way that the president's demeanor in that report was characterized could not be more wrong on the facts and clearly politically motivated, gratuitous. And the vice president, as a former prosecutor, went on to say that as a legal document, this report was not something that was uh, that was appropriate, as others have indicated. At the same time, I think the other thing that we're going to see as the days and weeks go on is what we saw from the White House counsel's office, a spokesperson, uh, Ian Sams, taking the podium uh, at the White House yesterday during the press br briefing and talking about uh, uh, some of the inconsistencies and incorrect information, according to him, that were in the report. And he also took the media to task, saying that the news media latched on to elements in that report and ran with it as opposed to taking them for what they were or uh, taking the, the president at his word as uh, when he described parts of the report as being uh, inaccurate and unfair as well. There's also the reality, I think, uh, Katie, that we're seeing come from folks who are uh, connected to the Biden White House and to the Biden campaign. Sources have told us that we can expect to see people who meet with the president regularly out there now more often talking about their experiences, talking about how on it he is in conversations with other people when it comes to uh, policies that he's advanced and policies that he wants to continue to advance. But uh, at this point, Katie, it doesn't seem as though we're going to see the president himself out there trying to refute some of the details that we've seen uh, come out in the Robert Hur report. Katie? Yeah, other than what we've seen him do already. NBC News White House correspondent Aaron Gilchrist, thank you so much for being here. Let's turn now to Capitol Hill, where House Republicans are planning to waste Americans' time and money again while they take another run at impeaching DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. House Majority Leader Steve Scalise, who is expected back next week after undergoing cancer treatment, indicated on Friday that a second Mayorkas impeachment vote would come on Tuesday night. But with a razor-thin majority, success may be elusive. Mayorkas survived a 214 to 216 vote earlier this week with Congressman Al Green casting a decisive no vote after rushing to the floor from the hospital after having abdominal surgery. Meanwhile, the Senate is working through this weekend, hammering out funding for Ukraine and Israel, something House Speaker Mike Johnson has yet to commit holding a vote on. 
Joining me now is Democratic Florida Congressman Jared Moskowitz, a member of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Congressman, we're going to get to the dysfunction on Capitol Hill, which is a day ending in why for you, I know. But I want to briefly discuss the her report, and I want to make it a very limited discussion because I think that's really only what it merits, to be honest. You see the Biden-Harris 2024 campaign going on the attack, reacting to Trump's speech last night with a statement calling Trump confused and deranged and giving a list of of what they say is more than two dozen examples of him lying in his speech. You know, Jared, if we put Trump's record next to Biden's record, Biden's record blows him away. Do you think the gloves come, should come off even more? Well, thanks, Katie. Thanks for having me. First of all, I thought what the president did by going to the microphone and going on the offensive was good. I'd like to see more of that. I don't think he was being defensive. I think, quite frankly, he was showing what was in the report was completely false. Right. I mean, if the guy, as they want to say, doesn't know what he's doing and he's senile going and and mixing it up uh, with the press, I think is important. I loved what happened with Peter Ducey when Peter said, oh, what about your memory? And he said, my memory is so bad that I actually gave you a question. Right. Just like that. Super quick. Uh, and so I thought that was that, that was really smart. You know, look, I, I think they got to remind the American people that both people who are running are in, are in their 80s. Right. They're both elderly gentlemen. And these slip ups kind of happen. Right. We saw, you know, President Trump mix up the leaders of Hungary and Turkey. He might have been hungry for Turkey, but he mixed up the leader of that country. Right. No one cared about that one. But when the president Biden mixed up, you know, the, the leader of Egypt and Mexico, all of a sudden that that's a huge story. Like Trump does this all the time in a deposition. He looked at a picture of the woman that he assaulted and said, oh, that's his ex-wife. Uh, wrong. He failed Pictionary. The speaker yesterday uh confused Iran and Israel. He said he supported Iran. We know, Mr. Speaker, you don't support Iran. You support Israel. We saw Jesse Waters mix up uh, Christy Nome, whether she was the governor of South Dakota or the governor of South Carolina. Right. So these mix ups happen, you know, but the press wants to make a big deal when when it's Joe Biden. But when Donald Trump says that Biden's going to start World War II, which, by the way, happened in the 40s, uh, you know, we kind of we kind of gloss over it. So I want to see the White House go on the offensive, quite frankly. Yeah, well, I definitely don't gloss over it. And I think the critical part of the her report is no charges, no direct evidence. And frankly, the comparison of criminal intent between Biden and Trump that resulted in Trump getting indicted. But let's move on. Let's go to Capitol Hill, your stomping grounds. Republicans are saying they're going to try again on Tuesday to impeach DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. House already has a full plate, though. Congressman with multiple spending bills, a looming government funding deadline coming up once again, Groundhog Day, right in March. The 118th Congress is living up to its title as the least productive in U.S. history, at least courtesy of the Republicans, right? Oh, well, hold on a second. This is a historic Congress. Don't, I mean, let's look at our achievements, <laughs> right? We we had we had never tried to remove a speaker in a, in 100 years. Hadn't happened in 100 years. That's historic. We did that. Oh, we succeeded, which had never happened before. So that's historic. We then expelled a member. Uh, that's, you know, that goes down in the history books, only happened a couple of times. Now we're impeaching a cabinet secretary that hasn't happened in 150 years. Oh, and they failed on the first attempt because apparently they don't know how to count. Marjorie Taylor Greene said, oh, we were hiding Democrats. Yeah, Marjorie would be happy if we were hiding in the attic again, by the way. I, I mean, the, the whole thing is just ridiculous. It's completely failure theater on their part. It leads to the chaos of this entire Congress. They've not done one thing for the American people, least productive Congress in modern history. 
Uh, and so, look, they'll try this again with, with Steve Scalise, who, who obviously is battling cancer. We always we, we obviously hope we pray for him to make sure he, that he, he can defeat cancer. But, yeah, they'll, they'll try to get this done. They'll do it now by one vote. And what's interesting is they want to get this done before the election in New York. There's a special election to replace George mm-hmm. Santos in New York. If the Democrats win this, they won't have then the votes to impeach Mayorkas. So they're going to break 150 year history by one vote. This is dead in the Senate. Okay, it has no future there, but yet this is what they want to waste uh, the American people's time on instead of trying to figure out how we can lower costs for the American people. And let's also talk about history repeating itself in a bad way. I want you to take a quick listen, Jared, to what Congresswoman Elise Stefanik said when she was asked if she would have certified the votes if she had been in the place of vice president on January 6, 2021. Take a quick listen. I would not have done what Mike Pence did. I don't think that was the right approach. I specifically uh, stand by what I said on the House floor, and uh, I stand by my statement, which was there so was unconstitutional overreach. Votes. I mean, the sycophancy, the the kowtowing is disgusting, frankly, but Stefanik is being viewed as a strong contender to be Trump's VP pick. Putting aside, you know, whether that was an audition for that role, though, how much do comments like that, that fly in the face of the law and fly in the face of normalized rules and procedures, how much does that concern you? Well, well, first, let's clear something up, right? I know we're not big fans of Mike Pence, but what Mike Pence did, right, made him a hero of that moment. He did his job. He didn't bow to the pressure of Donald Trump, which, by the way, made him different in that moment because many others uh, did in that moment and are continuing to bow to him as we see Donald Trump say, blame me, blame me for you know wanting to kill the bill that would have secured the border. Uh, so, look, this is par for the course with Republicans right now. Donald Trump owns them. They were afraid of him. He sends out a tweet. He can ruin their career. They know this. Donald knows this. And so, yeah, these all these Republicans will 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 break the law. There's very few of them. Uh, that will do so. We saw a couple of Republicans in the House, right, vote against Mayorkas impeachment. They're standing up for the Constitution. They should get credit. There's a couple senators uh, that have stood against Donald Trump before. We need them to stand up again. But these are the exception. They're not the rule. Uh, the majority of these Republicans will do whatever Donald Trump says. And we saw that when he killed the border deal, right? They were all like, yes, we're going to secure the border. We, In fact, this was their bill. They said, well, we can't do Ukraine. We can't do Israel if we don't secure the border at home. Democrats, OK, said, great, let's make a deal. We made a deal. Most conservative border bill in American history. And what does Donald Trump say? Nope, not on my watch, because I need that on the election. And all of a sudden, you see a sea change. Poor Mitch McConnell gave a speech in the afternoon saying the bill was great. And by the evening, he had a, he had to change positions because Donald Trump had gotten everybody in the caucus in the Senate uh, against their, their leader on the bill. So this is... This is what we're, we're headed for. Americans need to be paying attention because it's always at the fault of Republicans. Congressman Jared Moskowitz, thanks for being here this morning. I appreciate it. And still to come on The Katie Fang Show, why Trump's legal team is working an overtime drive to reveal the identity of witnesses in his classified documents case and how federal prosecutors are fighting to keep those witnesses safe. Plus, Florida's ballot battle inside the fight over a landmark abortion rights amendment that could enshrine abortion access in the state's constitution, if it can actually make it to the ballot in November. The Katie Fang Show will be right back. Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com app to download. 
Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Justice never sleeps, and neither does the Department of Justice, which isn't taking the weekend off. In the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case, you've got special counsel Jack Smith. He has until today to provide Trump's legal team with an unredacted piece of discovery that could expose sensitive information, including the names of potential witnesses, all thanks to a new order from Judge Aileen Cannon. Earlier this week, special counsel Jack Smith issued a scathing response to Cannon's ruling to share evidence with Trump's team, calling it, quote, clear error and saying, the move would potentially expose the witnesses to, quote, significant and immediate risks of threats, intimidation and harassment. And this is just the tip of the iceberg for yet another historic week for the twice impeached quadruple indicted ex-president. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals unanimously ruled that citizen Trump is not immune to prosecution for his treasonous acts on January 6th. Trump's legal team has until Monday to file an application for a stay of the mandate in order to petition the Supreme Court, who we know just heard oral arguments on Thursday as to whether the twice impeached quadruple indicted disgraced one term ex-president can be on the ballot in November. Buckle up, folks. We are just getting started. Joining me now are truly some of the very best in the business. Former U.S. attorney, MSNBC legal analyst, and the co-host of the Hashtag Sisters in Law podcast, Joyce Vance. Former FBI general counsel, MSNBC legal analyst, and the co-author of the new book, The Trump Indictments, the historic charging documents with commentary, coming out in two weeks. And, and which is Andrew Weissman, and attorney, contributor for The Atlantic and the co-host of the new podcast, George Conway Explains It All to Sarah Longwell. We've got George Conway, who is hanging out with Taylor Swift in Las Vegas. George, I'm going to start with you because you know it all. So, George, I want you to explain to me why we are stuck with Aileen Cannon, why the 11th Circuit's standard for recusal of Judge Cannon just might be too high of a burden for Jack Smith to carry. Yeah, I mean, I think a recusal motion is very, very difficult, and it's very, very difficult to make recusal motions on the basis of prior judicial decisions, even if the decisions are out of whack. But the one thing that could happen, and I, I defer to Joyce on this, on all things involving the 11th Circuit, but one of the things that can happen, and I've seen it happen in my own circuit, of the Second Circuit, is that judges can get reassigned sometimes when they are mishandling a case, and they do so egregiously. And I've heard that in the 11th Circuit, you get three strikes. Uh, Joyce can correct me on that. And this this judge clearly has already two strikes against her, given what happened uh, when she tried to block the DOJS uh, investigation and then tried to impede it with a special master. Joyce, I will go to you then, because George wants to defer to you on this particular issue. I want to speak specifically about that standard to be able to get Cannon recused from this case. Well, George is spot on. You know, judges typically are not recused from cases unless um, they have some sort of a conflict, a financial conflict or a familial conflict. This is a very different situation where we're looking at the way the judge has conducted herself in regards to a specific defendant. And those recusals are rare. If Jack Smith were to file a motion asking the judge to recuse, she would be obligated under the rules to write a written response, either defending herself or recusing herself, 
And there's some benefit to going through that process. But I think it would have been beneficial earlier in this case as opposed to now when we should be on the verge of trial and aren't. So to George's point about the 11th Circuit, it is exceedingly rare but not unheard of in this circuit for an 11th Circuit panel hearing an oral argument to decide to ask the chief judge in a district to reassign the case on remand. And as George says, it's sort of a a three strikes rule. When I've seen this happen, the panel judges have not been critical of the district judge. They've just said, given this history of repeated reversals, it would be difficult for this judge to continue to be objective in conducting this case. So we're going to order that it be reassigned. That could happen here if, say, Judge Cannon makes bad rulings in the SEPA hearings next week and the government appeals there. And so, Andrew, now I turn to you. Let's say, assuming arguendo, we are stuck with Judge Cannon, but she has done something that results not only in clear error being committed by her, but that results in manifest injustice based upon this recent ruling ordering the disclosure by today of certain information that the government has wanted to keep under wraps. Talk about what the recourse is for Jack Smith. Do we do an appeal? Is it interlocutory? Is it a writ of mandamus? What are we looking at in terms of what Jack Smith can do at this point? Sure. I I think it's going to be fascinating to see um, what he does. Um, You know, we don't know the underlying facts, but we do have a sense of them from Jack Smith's submission, as you noted, with respect to the concern about safety. If you put that together with what George pointed out, which is to remind everyone about Judge Cannon's really, truly horrific um, history in the um, sort of the pre-indictment phase, where she was reversed by the 11th Circuit, not once, but twice, in fairly scathing language. What Jack Smith um, may very well do today is seek what's called a writ of mandamus. It's a form of appeal, without getting into the technicalities, to say, Mm -hmm. once again, um, she is really not adhering Mm -hmm. to the law here. And I do think if she is doing something that would harm witnesses unduly, um, where this is the kind of thing that I think any other judge um, in a case would not take that step. Um, that is the kind of thing that, depending on who the panel is, and again, I, like George, always refer to um, Joyce in all things 11th Circuit and, frankly, everything else. Um, I do think that's the kind of thing that can get an appellate panel um, really angry about the way in which this is handled. And that was very much what we saw and was evident in the 11th Circuit's reversal of her twice, was a real concern about her disregard of uh, classified information, of the role of the intelligence community, interfering with um, normal criminal investigations, and explicitly saying that Donald Trump will be treated differently and more favorably than other defendants. And she was rebuked twice, saying that is not the standard. He is to be treated no better and no worse than anyone else. So she could really be playing with fire here. Um, in this ruling, but we rem- it remains to be seen, you know, the underlying facts and what Jack Smith does. But I do think if he takes it up, um, basically, as you said, fasten your seatbelts as to what could happen. 
And George, is there a distinction with a difference that we need to have our viewers understand here that at this moment, the order only calls, according to Judge Cannon, for Jack Smith to turn over that exhibit, that discovery exhibit that has that information that has otherwise not been disclosed only to the defense team and not publish it publicly? Well, I mean, that's also I mean, that's obviously an important restriction. But the fact of the matter is, once it's in the hands of a number of people and who are beholden to a particular and I'm not questioning anybody's integrity here. It's just if it's just something they don't need and something that's that's potentially dangerous. Uh, I mean, I would assume the DOJ wouldn't be trying to block it if it weren't. Um, it doesn't strike me as something that is necessary for them. Joyce, Andrew, George, they're sticking with me to break down more of Trump's legal troubles on the other side of a really quick break. So keep it right here on The Katie Fang Show, only on MSNBC. And we're back with my rock star legal panel, Joyce Vance, Andrew Weissman and George Conway. I want to shift to the Supreme Court arguments this week. I know that we've had a lot of discussions over the last few days about what happened on Thursday. But I want to drill down a little bit more and be a little bit more nuanced. Joyce, I wanted to ask you, Jonathan Mitchell, who represented Donald Trump for those oral arguments before SCOTUS, he clearly dropped the presidential immunity argument smack dab in the midst of those arguments on Thursday. Your thoughts about the fact that he might be previewing it because Kavanaugh was nodding his head along the way when the presidential immunity thing was said. Do you have a concern, Joyce, that SCOTUS, I mean, hasn't officially been asked necessarily to take it up yet at this point, but that decision is going to be made imminently? So I'm going to play appellate lawyer here and say I resist this temptation to conflate the two cases, at least substantively. They have nothing to do with each other. They will be treated like separate cases by the justices. But of course, Katie, we all live in the real world and we appreciate that there is some interplay. Just how much of a tolerance does this court have for cases involving Donald Trump in election year? We know this Supreme Court, really all Supreme Courts, but this one in particular, doesn't want to be in the position of deciding elections. They don't even like to decide political questions. So I think that there's a possibility that although Trump's lawyer uh, was quick to preview the case, the Supreme Court may simply affirm the Court of Appeals when the immunity case comes in front of them. So, Andrew, to Joyce's point, Kavanaugh is the one who teed up the issue of 2383, the Insurrection Act, when he asked Jonathan Mitchell, again, Trump's lawyer, basically, well, Trump wasn't charged with that particular crime, which would have been a slam dunk when it came to disqualification. In your opinion, Andrew, should that crime have been charged? You know, I think there were two good reasons not to do it. Um, one better than the other. Um, one reason that could have come to play is that that is a crime that is typically not charged. And when I say that, that is an understatement. Um, you know, you'd have to go back scores and scores and scores of years, and it would have opened up the department to the idea of selective prosecution, if not legally, at least in the court of public opinion of why are you charging this? And the answer would have been, well, we've never had a former president engage in conduct like this. I think the second, though, is almost precisely Kavanaugh's point, which is that they didn't want to politicize this prosecution. And if they had brought a charge where the remedy in the statute for a conviction is disqualification from running, then um, Donald Trump um, would have said, look, you are, in fact, doing this for political purposes. You are doing it to, to get me off of the 
um, uh, the ballot, so I cannot run. Uh, and so by avoiding that particular charge, um, they are trying to sort of depoliticize this to say, no, what we're doing is we thought you committed a crime. We think that the jury um, should be presented with that evidence and we'll see um, whether they agree with us. Um, and so the issue of the remedy, it was not why the case was brought. And I think that's a pretty powerful argument for doing it um, as to why they, they did not bring uh, this charge. Again, this is just speculation on my part, but I think those are likely to be the two the two things that they were thinking about. But George, during these arguments, the lawyer for the Colorado voters, Jason Murray, said the following. There's a reason Section 3 has been dormant for 150 years, and it's because we haven't seen anything like January 6th since Reconstruction. Insurrection against the Constitution is something extraordinary. You know, George, to what Andrew just said, nobody made Donald Trump crime. Nobody made Donald Trump break the law. And if the consequence of breaking the law was disqualification from the ballot, then so be it. So why is it that if there's some almost like uh, kind of consideration what the court of public opinion might perceive what the DOJ is doing, then but everybody knows that everybody thinks this is a political prosecution anyway on the side of the Republicans. Why not actually go for the jugular and get as much as you can against somebody like Donald Trump if it meets probable cause? Well, I, I in this particular case, because they want a conviction. And when you are charging things, I assume it's the same. Uh, I'm not a criminal lawyer. I didn't prosecute, but I wrote complaints in the civil realm. You don't always put everything you can possibly bring. You want to focus on the, the claims that are easier, that will get you the result that you want. And the conspiracy to defraud the United States, I think, is a no-brainer. I think the the charge of obstruction is, is a, obstruction of an official proceeding is a no-brainer. And I, I see every reason for them just to go with those uh, which are tried and true and have been working in these January 6 cases than when then go try to have to figure out how he connected to every single person who was out there on Capitol Hill that day, beyond a reasonable doubt. Joyce, I got about 30 seconds. Ladies last, and you definitely are a lady. Joyce, I want to ask you about states' rights. What happened to states' rights on Thursday? Because they didn't seem to exist during the back and forth questioning that happened between all counsel and members of the highest court of our land. Right. States' rights disappeared in this notion that we should have a limited federal government and that states should make the bulk of decisions was seemingly absent. And look, Katie, I don't want to overplay that hand. This is a question that has national dimensions because we're talking about electing national candidates. This court may well rule that one state can't make decisions about candidates' eligibility for the entirety of the country. But States' rights, a notable feature in Dobbs, the abortion case, where the court decided to let every state make up its own mind, was not present in the courtroom this week. Well, I'm happy to define what insurrection means for Brett Kavanaugh any day. Joyce Vance, Andrew Weissman, George Conway. George, go help the Chiefs win, friend of Taylor Swift that you are. And hello to Bonnie and Clyde in that picture Does, behind you, you these, my friends. Do you want one of these? Do I need one of what? What is it? One of these. Look at this. Look. What does it say? In it my says, Chiefs. My yes, Chiefs George, era. I would like to wear that next week on the show, the Katie okay. Fang show, in the in my Chiefs era. Thank you guys so much for being here. I appreciate it. Andrew Joyce, I'll get you guys one too. Coming up next, 
ballot battle. Florida's Supreme Court will soon decide on ballot language that could redefine constitutional protections for abortion access in the Sunshine State. We're going to discuss that next. A landmark abortion rights amendment may be headed to Florida ballots in November, but first it's got to pass constitutional scrutiny. On Wednesday, the conservative-leaning Florida Supreme Court heard oral arguments over the ballot language. But notably, several justices pushed back against the Florida AG's case that the amendment's language is too broad. Take a quick listen to what Chief Justice Carlos Muniz had to say. It just doesn't seem like this is really trying to be deceptive. The people of Florida aren't stupid. I mean, they can figure this out. The court has until April 1st to rule on the language. If the amendment makes the ballot and surpasses the 60 percent supermajority that's required, it would strike down the state legislature's abortion bans and enshrine reproductive rights in Florida's Constitution. Joining me now is Lauren Brenzel, campaign director for Floridians Protecting Freedom. Lauren, I was pleasantly surprised from the oral arguments that we heard at the Florida Supreme Court, but I don't want to count chickens before they hatch. But do you share my optimism that maybe the amendment language was clear enough that it'll make that ballot uh, in November. We've always known that our language was clear. And I think what was wonderful was to see the justices, maybe they're not supporters of abortion access, but they they showed a deep respect for the Constitution. And that's what we've always wanted to see from this case. So we are feeling excited about the justices' arguments around the constitutionality of this language and the hollow and political nature of the attorney general's arguments. And Lauren, it's not just people having an opinion. It's actual numbers that are supporting your push here. A November poll from UNF finds 62 percent of Florida voters support the proposed abortion rights amendment. That includes 53 percent of Republicans saying that they would vote West. Yes. Why is it, Lauren, then, that there's such a prominent disconnect between what the Florida voters want and what somebody like the Florida AG wants to see happen? I think there are so many politicians who are out of step with how real people think about abortion. They don't want to see politicians involved in their private medical decisions. They don't take their senator to the doctor's office with them. So this is really showing yet again, we've seen wins all across the United States and states that are conservative, that unfortunately there are politicians who are out of step with what constituents believe. And, you know, Lauren, I read something that was so fascinating in uh, while I was preparing for your interview today. There was a group of former Republican officials that were led by an ex-lieutenant governor, Jennifer Carroll. They filed a brief that supported your amendment, saying that the power of the people to decide for themselves what their fundamental law should be is so valued in Florida that courts should exercise extreme restraint before blocking citizen initiatives like yours from reaching Floridians. I mean, you also see that this crosses party affiliations, the concept of people having individual freedom and liberty to decide what they want to do with their bodies is something that is not just specific to a particular party. No. And I think here in Florida, we are particularly committed to the idea that we don't want to see politicians. That cuts across party lines, not wanting to see our politicians interfere with our private lives. It's something that is relatable to Republicans, to non-party affiliated voters and to Democrats. And the issue of abortion has become so politically overblown. It's become such a wedge issue when really what the people of Florida are saying is this is just health care and I don't want my politician dictating what my doctor can do. 
So let's assume, Lauren, that in November it's on the ballot. The language is there. It passes with the 60 percent supermajority that is required. Do you have a concern, though, that you could see something happen in Florida like we're seeing happen in Ohio right now where the voters speak, it passes, it achieves the supermajority that is required, but then the Ohio legislature, for example, tries to finagle away to not honor what the voters wish? Yeah, I think that we always are going to have to fight to make sure that we restore access to reproductive health care. We know, again, politicians want this level of control. Um, it's really sad to see that they want that, but they don't want to be left out of these decisions. We will keep fighting to make sure they are left out because there are 84,000 patients a year who access care in Florida. We are the third largest state in the nation, and women are going to be put in a serious public health crisis if abortion is further restricted here in Florida. We are waiting right now for the implementation of a six-week abortion ban, and there is nowhere for patients to go in the Southeast if abortion is banned at six weeks in Florida. So we will fight for elections and we will fight after elections to make sure that we are able to fully remove these politicians from these incredibly personal decisions. And as I say goodbye to you, Lauren Brinzel, I am going to remind our viewers actually that you guys obtained more than a million signatures to be able to even get this constitutional amendment going. And so my hat, to, my hat off to you for that. April 1st, ladies and gentlemen, is the date that we're looking for where we should get a decision from the Florida Supreme Court. Lauren Brinzel, thanks for being here and for sharing all of this information. It's critically important. Thank you so much. Coming up next, The Brother's Son, the latest hit from Netflix, rocketing up in the streaming charts this week. I'm going to talk to one of the series stars, Sam Song Lee, on how the cast and the crew are keeping up the momentum in Hollywood, getting AAPI stories on all of the screens. Don't go anywhere. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. Take action and end this. Probably gonna die, so might as well get one in before you go. That was a clip from Netflix's The Brothers Son, a new action-packed series about two brothers separated on opposite sides of the Pacific, brought together, though, after a mysterious assassin puts their father in a coma. The elder brother, who has become a legendary killer in the Taiwan gang world, must return to his family in America to protect his mother and naive younger brother before the family's long list of enemies begin to target them. Joining me now is that younger brother, one of the stars of this hit series, The Brother's Son, Sam 
song. Lee Sam, highlight of my day spending time with you. <laughs> Let's talk substance first. This show, because I want people to know, this show was conceptualized by an all-Asian writer's room. Features an all-Asian cast. You got Asians in front of the camera and behind the camera. As we continue to see this type of breakouts for AAPI representation, mm -hmm. how does it make you feel to be such a part of this next gen of AAPI representation? First of all, it's such a pleasure to meet you. Um, this is really exciting uh, to be here, to be able to talk about this. Um, it's incredible. It's incredible. I, I feel like in a lot of ways, it's life-changing, obviously, but um, I've felt like I've always, I've had a hunch that the industry was going to be able to get to this point. And I'm just really stoked that it's happened a lot faster than I thought. Like, I, I honestly thought it was going to take over 10 years to see the momentum that we're getting. Um, but it's happened so much sooner. I think just with the globalization of Netflix, of shows, um, audiences, global audiences being open to representation, it's just sparked a lot of conversation and it's, it's awesome to be here. Sam, let's also talk about representation. I'm a big advocate of see her, be her. In your instance, you said that people like Daniel Day Kim, mm -hmm. DK, people like Stephen Yun, when you saw them on the screen, yeah. it inspired you to say, you know what? I see them on the screen and I think I can do that too. Yes, yes. It gave me a lot of confidence, especially growing up in America, because, you know, I grew up also in China and in Hong Kong. And it was weird because I feel like growing up there and watching TV there, it was so normalized to me. Everybody on TV looked like me. Um, mm. And then coming to the to the America, it was not like that. And so it kind of had like a weird effect on me where I didn't feel confident that I could do this. But I do feel like being in Hong Kong, being in China and seeing it so normalized gave me the delusions to do what I want to do <laughs> because I realized that, hey, maybe it, this can happen here. You know, like it, it made it, it gave me a little bit more confidence. Well, let's talk about that American dream. You and I are both the children of strong immigrant Asian mothers. Your mother wanted you to be a computer yeah. scientist, an engineer. <laughs> My mom wanted me to be a doctor, too. You and I need to get together to commiserate over the fact that we probably traumatized <laughs> our mothers significantly that we haven't done that. But what is it meant? But what is it meant to you and your family to see you achieve that success, being an immigrant, having that immigrant story be such a blockbuster success in the United States? It, it means everything. It means I, I truly could not be happier. And I feel so, so grateful that that my mom can experience this with me and and get to get to see me succeed um, at, at her work these days. You know, she's like the most popular person there. Everybody, you know, comes into her office and uh, shouts the show out and and, uh, you know, always is curious about what I'm up to and just, you know, how behind the scenes stories on the show. So I think she's really enjoying it and I'm really happy to to see her so fulfilled and I'm just glad I didn't let her down. So <laughs> in the little time that I have left with you, Sam, I did want to no spoilers, by the way. I wanted to talk about the importance of yeah. food. Food is critically mm -hmm. important in our cultures and, and a lot of cultures. Actually, I think it's a tie that binds a lot of different cultures. But food plays a very prominent yeah. role in the series. The brother son. Talk quickly about why you think that is. I think especially in Asian families, you know, food is where you come together to sit down. And even if you look at the way that that Asian people eat their food, it's like family style, you know, like everybody kind of serves 
uh, there, there are dishes that everybody shares and that's, you don't really see that in like Western society. You don't really see that when I go out with my friends, but you know, in traditional Chinese society and traditional Chinese gatherings, it's just, it's, it's a way to come together. And you really see that in the, in the show so much of some of the best scenes, uh, especially with Michelle uh, comes over the dinner table. So, Sam, uh, I have to let you go. Sam Sung Lee, I did want to say the following to the viewers. The Brother Son, mm -hmm. Netflix, go check it out. Sam also can be found on various yes. social media platforms <laughs> where he got started. And the last thing I'm going to say to you, Sam, is I like karaoke, too. I'll sing Shallow with you any day, but we got to go to Chong yes. Cho's mansion. For those of you listening right we now, do. you'll be like, what is Katie Fang talking about? But watch the series and you'll know gotta what watch I'm talking the series. about. Sam, thanks for exactly. being here, my friend. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. Of course. Take care. Have a good one. And okay. you too. And don't forget, all of you, starting today, you can listen to every episode of The Katie Fang Show as a podcast for free. Scan the QR code on your screen to follow now. My thanks to all of you for joining us. I'm back here next Saturday at noon Eastern. Remember, follow us on social media using that handle, at Katie Fang Show. You can also watch clips of the show on YouTube.